Hello. Yes, Michael McKenzie here aboard an old wooden boat packed to the gunnels with people and equipment. So what could possibly go wrong? I speak to you from the heart of Melbourne on the Yarra River, or Birrawan, to use its first name. Behind me is Flinders Street Station. It's a railway station and in front of me is the latest installation for the 2014 Melbourne Food and Wine Festival. It's a barge and a railway bridge transformed into a rain garden and an immersory. We're just about to pass under it now. And while we're on this boat, this glorious boat, the theme this year, we should say, is water. So that's what we're doing. We're taking to the water. We'll be shucking oysters, weighing up Murray Cod, revealing the secrets of Ikejime, and even throwing a line into the water. Whether we catch something or not remains to be seen. And like all good boat trips, we have a band to play as we sink. So when I say a band, he actually rises like a merman from a rather shabby underwater suburb. It's live music from acclaimed composer and band leader... Charles Jenkins. And we'll hear more from Charles a little later on. But the boat we're standing in is absolutely stunning. It's called the MV Melburnian, and its owner is Paul Sullivan. Paul, where does the story for this gorgeous vessel begin? Well, this is one of Michael many workboats that were built years ago in the 1940s, and thankfully it's still going. Who built the boat? General Motors and Ford, God bless them, built the boats, and they built about, I think, even up to around 800, and they're positioned all around the country. They were built for many things, and they were known as a workboat. The boats actually operated up in Papua New Guinea during the war and moving troops around, from this one being a customs boat up in Sydney Harbour uh, for a period of time. But all the boats were built down here in Fisherman's Bend and there's some great photos on an old website called Wooden Boats that you can actually see all the boats lined up and being built at that time. They were completely wrapped with a metal casing up for uh, Darwin and up around Papua New Guinea to keep the worm and keep the the tropical um, bugs out of the timber. Now, you've gone up and down this waterway, the Yarra, off and on for a long time now, uh, both as a rower and as a boat owner. Correct. Have you ever seen people fishing in this part of the Yarra? There are a lot of people fishing here, and it's it's funny you say that. It's actually a healthy waterway and a lot of fish, and it's even been rumoured that we have had a fisherman down here who loves to catch fish and catches a lot of fish, and I believe he owns a fish and chip shop. That's the rumour, but... uh... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so straight from the water to the fryer. Fish of the day. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder if that's okay. I, as I pass under one of the low bridges here, which bridge is this? This one here is Kingsbridge. This is Kingsbridge. And uh, literally the, the span of this bridge is only about a metre off the roof of this low wooden cabin of the MV Melbourneian as we approach the World Trade Centre. And I'm glad we are because I want to ask someone a question about whether it's okay to fish. Excuse me, if I can just get up through there. We're just pulling up at one of the many berths on the side of the Yarra River. Remembering, of course, that the Yarra flows through Melbourne like so many other rivers flow through our big cities around Australia. And we'll be talking about water quality soon. But there's someone on the pier next to me, Anthony Forster, who is the state manager of freshwater fisheries here in Victoria and has been dropping a line in these kind of waters for about 45 years. Anthony, we put you down here earlier hoping against hope that you would find something on the line. Did you get anything? Yes. You did? Yes. But uh, it got away. The classic story, isn't it? <laughs> How big um, was it, Anthony? Well, it was huge, actually. No, no, it was um, oh, pretty 24, 24 centimetres or so. It was a black rim. 
Are you serious? Yeah. That, that big? Oh, well, that's a small one. Um, they, the legal size is 28 centimetres. Okay. So I had it there, ready to go. It snagged me and uh, broke the line. So oh. it often happens around here, a lot of timber and structure. So well, come and drown your sorrows aboard the boat. I will. Come on through, Terrific. and we'll talk as we go. Because, Anthony, I want to ask you a question as we get on board. Paul Sullivan, who owns this boat you've just entered, was saying that he's seen a certain bloke who owns a fish and chip shop actually uh, fishing in the Yarra and then taking what he caught back to the shop and using it to sell. Is that okay? Not even close. No. no not even close? Not, not legal in, in any sense, no. Okay. So uh, recreational fishers can't sell their catch. That's the bottom line. Uh, commercial fishers are licensed to do so. Recreational fishers can't. So, Not, not good practice for a whole range of reasons, really. So, in, in terms of your knowledge of this, this stretch of river, if we were pulling fish out of here, would you be happy to eat it? Uh, the EPA have really quite particular guidelines around how much fish you can eat. Um, there is a bit of history of contamination, and there is in most uh, metropolitan waters in most big cities. In this instance, there's some heavy metals that you sit in the sediment of the, of the, of the river, and small fish uh, eat the worms, and the worms um, are eaten by the bigger fish and so on and so on and these heavy metals can bioaccumulate so the bigger the fish potentially the more uh, the more, more contaminated they are so look you can eat fish absolutely but there are some alerts out around how much how many fish you could eat from from here so in terms of say the black brim that you had on the line by the way everybody he had a black brim on the line, he did say that. Uh, yes, round of applause for Anthony. Couldn't quite bring it to shore, um, but uh, it was 24 centimetres, 28 is the, is the legal limit. If, if you'd taken that brim to, to land and gutted it and taken it home, is brim the kind of fish you'd feel safe about eating in this stretch of river? Um, so if it was 28 centimetres, yeah, I'd have no problem in taking fish home to eat it. Um, you know, I wouldn't do it on a regular basis. I wouldn't take fish from the air every second day and eat them, for example. Because yeah, the EPA has warnings about that. Absolutely. But, you know, the occasional fish is, is perfectly fine. Personally, I don't fish this river a huge amount. I have right. friends that regularly fish it. And most of my friends are actually catch and release. It's a real increasing trend amongst recreational fishers. They enjoy the experience. They catch the fish, but they put it back to swim away to catch another day. Well, Anthony, we'll talk more about what to look out for in fishing in urban rivers a little later. But, um, but just a tip, when you're, when you're baiting a hook in this kind of water, what do we need to know about that? Well, the principle of fishing is that you put on the hook the bait that the fish are already eating. You match the hatch, if you like. So in this instance, I used sandworms and uh, nippers or bass yabbies. They're common in the mouth of the Yarra, so yeah. brim really like them. And they're the great bait. Okay. Well, look, Anthony, thank you. Round of applause for Anthony Forster. There be seven creeks There be seven creeks One for each day of the week Charles Jenkins here on RN First Bite. We're aboard the MV Melbourneian and we're cruising the Yarra as part of the theme for water this year of the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival. Someone else has spent time, in fact more than 25 years, catching, cooking, selling, dishing up and talking about seafood has actually come from up north in Sydney to join us here. John Susan, and welcome to RN First Bite. G'day Mike, how are you going? I'm well. John, you've actually flown in this morning from Sydney with a box containing what? 
Well, we've got some Sydney rock oysters, which is an interesting name. In that it's a species of oyster that grows along some 1,500 kilometres of coastline from basically just up the road here at the Mallacoota Inlet all the way through to Moreton Bay in south-east Queensland. And also some wild Angasi or flat oysters, the mud, native mud oyster from uh, the south coast of New South Wales. Would you mind shucking a few of these as we talk? Absolutely. Okay. What makes these oysters worth transporting this far down to another state? Well, of course, I mean, oysters are a, a, a really fantastic seafood. They're very much reflective of not only the, their species, but the, the region from which they come and the husbandry with which the grower actually grows them. The rock oyster, of course, is characterised by its very full, rich, minerally flavour and, uh, and delicious, almost sort of cucumber or watermelon rind to- aftertaste here. Try one of those, Mike. All right, I'll try one of those. And, yeah. and what John's done to shut this oyster open for me, it's um, fresh out of the styrofoam box <laughs> <laughs> and off the plate. Here we go. Oh, yeah. Aren't they delicious? I'm getting the Pacific Ocean right there in my, in my mouth. That's fantastic. Absolutely. What would constitute the flavour profile difference between what I've just eaten and, say, Coffin Bay oysters? Coffin Bay is a, is a name given to a, a, um, a Pacific oyster, mm-hmm. which is the most prolifically farmed oyster in the world. It actually originates from a small place in Japan called Hiroshima, which I'm not quite sure what else that's famous for, but indeed oysters is one of them. And the Pacific oyster is the, is the species of oyster that is grown all around the world. I would suggest that the rock oyster and the Pacific Oyster are about as similar as I am to Kylie Minogue in terms of, you know... Because I was going to say you're dead spit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the, the Pacific Oyster, and, and, and our friend Mitch might correct me here in a moment because of his love of the Fin de Clare, which actually happens to be a, fi- a Pacific Oyster from, from France. The Pacific Oyster has a, um, in my opinion, a, a very sort of clean but almost one-dimensional flavour profile, whether the Rock Oyster is much more mouth-filling and a very complex and rich characteristic. The way you talk about it, it's almost like it's wine. Well, that's exactly what we try and encourage people to look at oysters. I mean, the days of the only difference between oysters being whether they're Rockefeller or Kilpatrick are hopefully <laughs> behind us. And we're now looking at the differences between the various estuaries and waterways and the growers and the species. So I'd like to think that in the next generation, we're going to have a very particular oyster consumer. Well, you've got a mate standing next to you here who uh, I know goes back a long way with you. Perhaps you'd like to introduce us to him because he's a guest of the festival down here in Melbourne. Well, Mitch Tonks is sort of certainly one of my great mentors and, and is one of the most inspirational people that I've ever met in the seafood industry. A bit like me, he's been sort of floating around stubbing his toe on fresh fish for quite a long while. And um, unlike me, he's a particularly good cook of, of, of seafood. Mitch's restaurants down in the southwest of the UK are, are my absolute favourite restaurants on the planet. So uh, there you go, I declare my interest up front. Mitch, welcome to uh, Back to Melbourne. And uh, you've tried these oysters. Let's ignite some debate here. What do you think? These oysters are wonderful, and I think, I think what John was saying about, uh, you know, the day has come when oysters are treated like wine, and they, they are very reflective of the environment they're in. And I think one of the things that uh, I love about the... Um, John's just giving you one now. Yeah, these, these are great. I mean, lovely and milky, very fatty, and, you know, I think the thing is when you eat oysters, you've got two bites at it. You know, a lot of people think about just swallowing an oyster, but actually, it's the first water which gives you the kind of experience of the environment it's in, but the purest water of all is in the centre of the oyster. Uh, when you start to chew it, Mm. Sweetness. I mean, incredible sweetness. Can I say, Mitch, as mm. you do that, as you taste that oyster mm. now in your mouth with the stomach open and the water flowing out, some people in, in the cabin are going, that is fabulous. And other people in the cabin are going, 
where's somewhere I can throw up? Yeah, well, I, I think the thing is, I mean, I always, I, I think oysters are like chewing the bottom of boats. You know, you've got that real kind of barnacly, pure, surfy seaweed, which is great. So when it comes to talking about seafood, eating seafood, and you, you've, you've branded yourself and, and what you do in your restaurants as, as a great way to source seafood, um, how do you make sure that you tread that path of giving people beautiful flavours but also being sustainable? Well, look, I think there was uh, something John and I did a program out here uh, many years ago just looking at um, uh, sort of the seafood, the, the sustainability here and at home. And I think the fishing industry has changed and adapted over the last 10 years. You know, fishermen are really, really fishing much smarter than they ever used to. And uh, certainly in, uh, from, uh, in the UK, I think we're going to have a fishing industry forever. I think, you know, the fishing effort has shrunk down more. People are doing better things and it's, uh, you know, it's fantastic. Well, I might just go back to John for a moment, Mitch, and just ask, John, you're, you're just shucking away there as we're talking. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I did say shucking. So I'm yeah. just um, wondering, take us through the technique. How does it work? Okay, well, I, th- I think being able to shuck an oyster is a social skill, something akin to being able to take the cork out of a bottle of champagne. That no, ev- no pressure then. <laughs> everyone should absolutely know that, that how to do it. I mean, forget about trying to fan a strawberry or Van Dyke a lemon for an entree. This is the real deal. So, okay, well, um, I'm, you're going to take me through a shuck. Okay, you're going to... Mine, good luck. Here we go. Okay. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> no, no, no. I'll, go, it's I'll a, keep the it's, ready, it's, right? it's actually okay. quite simple. So okay. the first thing you do, I mean, all oysters have, have two shells. One is cupped and one is flat. Mm-hmm. So we want to place the cupped shell down onto, the, onto a clean table and using a, using a clean dishcloth, just position it with the hinge facing out okay and then with a with an oyster knife now an oyster knife is not a pen knife a butter knife or your wife's tweezers it's actually a specific implement and and for 20 bucks it's probably the best investment you can buy aside from a corkscrew so it's thin it's like a shiv it's very heavy blade it's very it's weighty and it's very thick uh, with a sharp point at the at at the end of the knife so we position that at approximately 15 degrees between the two hinges Okay. Okay. Now here you go. All right. There you go. And which way am I seesawing? No, no, so you're in. You've yep. got some. You've got some uh, leverage purchase on the on the hinge. Yes. Now at that stage, all the hard work's done, and it's unlikely that you're going to put the knife through your thumb, but we'll carry on regardless. So at this stage, <laughs> with the with the knife firmly positioned between the two shells, pretend you're riding a Vespa down the main street, down Collins Street, and just give it a, a quick rev. And there you go, you've broken its back. That was so easy. That is so easy. Now, the only other aspect that we need to consider here is that on every oyster, at approximately 2 o'clock on the shell, if you're looking at it from the top, Mm. is located the adductor muscle, which holds the two shells together. What we want to do is carefully slide that knife along the top shell so we don't injure the the flesh inside the oyster. Sliding the knife along the top shell, we just nip the adductor muscle off and carefully remove the lid. So this is where I do cut my thumb potentially. No, no, no. You've done oh, no. a great job. You've still got it firmly between the uh, between the, the uh, cloth. And off comes that top shell. And how have I done? The, that's perfect. That's absolutely perfect. Look, everybody. Now, you might like to just slide the knife under the adductor muscle, under the other side of the adductor muscle to remove it, and off you go. That's it. So if you can imagine, there's, that's probably half a glass of Chardonnay to open 12 oysters, and that's a lot of fun on a Saturday evening before the guests arrive. John, Mitch Tonks, I feel like I'm part of your inner, inner circle now. You're in. I, I can shuck with the best of them. Thank you both very much indeed. We'll come back to John a little later to talk about Murray Cod, but as we are talking about water throughout this entire trip down the Yarra, it's only fair that we invite aboard a musician because he received Australia Council money to write an album dedicated to the theme of water. That album was only launched last week. 
here to sing Sweet Mildura. Will you please welcome Charles Jenkins from Charles Jenkins and the Shabagos. your country music you don't like mine but you used to hold me so tenderly you used to bounce me up and down upon your knee sweet Mildura of the blue skies Turn your water into wine And the blood-red soil Made rich with root Come along, everyone, and pick The low-hanging Mighty river slows With no particular place to go And leaves me stranded Dry upon the plain Hung together with those Who thought that with the plow Would come the rain hold me so tenderly you used to bounce me up and down upon your knee you used to bounce me up and down upon your knee and you used to bounce me up and down upon your knee Mighty river, slow A mighty river, slow A mighty river, slow Charles Jenkins there with a beautiful song called Sweet Mildura from his most recent album with his band The Chivagos called Too Much Water in the Boat. Charles will return a little later right here on the MV Melbourneian where we are afloat for RN First Bite. And Anthony Forster has caught a fish, everybody! <laughs> Anthony Forster has caught a fish! Anthony, bring it aboard. Bring it aboard. I know it's a mighty monster. See if you can hold on to it. Oh, mate, well done. 
What have you got here? So a small brim, probably 22, 23 centimetres long. So that'll be one, obviously, that's release? Yeah, that, that, that one goes back. Lovely little fish. There's plenty of them there. Just and describe got, it to. It's a gorgeous sort of silvery shimmer with a blue tinge, like almost a purple tinge across yeah. the back. It's got lovely dorsal fins which are raised. It's got a very uh, sharp mouth with lots of crushing teeth. In stark contrast to some of the bigger fish we have in the system, for example, the Murray Cod. I never realised of a Murray Cod in the Yarra River. A, a lot of people don't appreciate that. In fact, the Murray Cod was moved into the Yarra River back in the 1920s by a bunch of recreational fishers. Angling clubs got together and said, this is a good idea. How did they get it there? So back in those days, they got milk carts with old milk cans and they put the fish in and they, um, they travel all the way by milk cart and horse all the way across the, the range and put them into the Plenty River and over time they've established. So how big can Murray Cod grow these well, days? The biggest on record is 113 kilos, which is a massive fish. In Victoria? In Victoria. 113 kilos. Now, I'm just going to put this fish back. Oh, yeah, put it back. Yeah, please. The actual name of the Murray cod is quite misleading, isn't it, Anthony? Well, they're not just from the Murray. This is the point. In fact, they're across four states and one territory. And so they are native like, to Australia. Absolutely. They're an iconic species. Yeah. I mean, they really are exceptional fish on all accounts. And in fact, John Susman, John, um, you and your dad used to go on regular fish trips when you were a young lad in search of the elusive Murray cod. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's one of the, one of the anglers' great rewards to, uh, to actually snare a Murray cod, that's for sure. They're quite a particular feeder, aren't they, Anthony? And it's an interesting fish to try and catch. We used to go up to the, from Loch Nine up to, to Wentworth on the Murray um, and up to the Anna Branch at the Darling to, uh, to try and hunt them down. And they're a great eating fish too, aren't they? Absolutely amazing. I don't think I've actually come across any fish anywhere in the world that eats like a, a mature Murray cod. What is it about their flesh that's so enticing? Very fatty, very full-flavoured, really rich, and incredible flesh as well. When it's, when it's steamed or pan-fried, it, it has a, a really unique texture that I haven't found in many other, certainly seawater fish, let alone freshwater fish. It's just an absolute cracker. Mitch Tonks, it sounds to me like this fish would be better than most things you could catch ever in the UK. Oh, I'll tell you, we have some... Uh, hang on, we've, we've had this debate, me and Sus. You know, he actually flew over some King George Whiting one day to my house in the UK. And, uh, and I live next door to the fish market, so I went and got some Dover soles. And uh, we had a cook-off side by side with, uh, with the fish. And I have to say, the one thing that we have that you guys don't get down here is uh, we have amazing flatfish. Big turbot, brill, Dover soles, things that are just, you know, like dustbin lid size. And they're, they're a real joy. And uh, so we're lucky to have some great fish where we are. Well, who won the fish off? Oh, obvious, wasn't it? I mean, you know, <laughs> the local boys. <laughs> <laughs> well, while we're talking about fish and, and the, the eating, the consumption, and Anthony has already warned us about, you know, taking too many species of certain size from these kind of rivers around Australia, whether it be the Yarra or the Derwent, perhaps, or, or even the Parramatta River in Sydney, which has also got some real issues with it when it comes to dioxins, Anthony, I think you said. Um, when it comes to the actual killing of the fish, John, you've got a, a method called ikajime. Is that right? Yeah, well, it's a, we've been lucky in Australia that we've, we've obviously had some fairly robust export markets for some time. And back in the early 90s, we had uh, an influx of Japanese buyers come to Australia looking for premium seafood. And one of the things that we learned from them was how to actually handle, in particular, our tuna. And the term that they use is ikejima, which is spike bleed. And it, it is actually a, a means by which to reduce the stress on the animal at harvest. 
and it really does make it an incredible difference to the eating characteristic of, of any fish. Just like an animal, just like a terrestrial animal, if it's, if it's harvested humanely, then it's, it's going to carry a lot more sweetness because there's not a narogen or a natural adrenaline running through the, the muscles of the animals. So, so what's the method? So the method is to actually sort of spike it in the, in the rear brain just behind the back of the eye. Um, and then to and a larger fish, they'll run a stainless steel wire down the central nervous system of its backbone and kill its nerves as quickly as possible. And then to c- cut the main aortas on either side of the heart to drain it of blood from the muscles as quickly as possible. And then immerse it into, uh, into an iced slurry of, of water to reduce its body temperature as quickly as possible to, re- to impose rigor mortis or induce rigor mortis as quickly as possible. And so is death instantaneous when you do this? Absolutely, yeah. Would you like to try? <laughs> sure. Sure, John. <laughs> Who shall we try it on? Yeah. Hey, Mitch. <laughs> so from Mitch and John, let's head to one of the people who actually won a prize to come aboard the MV Melbourneian with us. Will you please welcome Holly Desmond? Hello. Hi, Holly. Hello. You've got a winning entry there. Would you like to share with us your hundred words or less of prose that got you on this boat? Certainly. In this particular case, it's about the Hawkesbury River, which is in New South Wales, where I spent my childhood. Cool, deep, mysterious river. Here I learnt about cloud names, the moon's influence, the secrets of the universe, making hooks and sinkers, and how not to crash a boat into the rocks. Stolen oysters from the leases eaten straight away. Mushrooms collected in the early morning mist, eaten on toast for breakfast. Prawns netted at night on an estuary, cooked on the riverbank. Look deeply into the water and find the child. Eat food from the wild and be with nature. There is no reason to life, it just is. So the engines of the MV Melbourneian have started. Charles Jenkins has started playing a song called Across the Inland Sea, so it's time for us to leave and head back upriver. I'd like to thank all our guests, Anthony Forster, John Suzman, Mitch Tonks, Holly Desmond, Paul Sullivan and musician Charles Jenkins. This program was produced by Maria Tickle, recorded by Paul Penton, Mark Veer, Chris Adams and technical production by John Jacobs. You can download this entire program from the RN First Bite website. Thank you to the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival team for their support as well. And guess what? We'll have more stories about water from the festival next time. My name's Michael McKenzie. We'll talk to you soon. flags of Australia, Britain and New Zealand no longer fly over the island of Nauru. These trustees for the United Nations have handed over to the people of the island. Independence has come after 80 years of foreign rule. And it brought great wealth to the people of Nauru. But now its economy depends on holding Australia's asylum seekers. The Story of Nauru. Download or stream this program from the Radio National website.